this week on the Back Table Podcast. Regarding the issue of ergonomics, it's really the study of how the environment, the worker interacts with the environment. And one of the crucial things is to try and adapt the environment to the worker instead of forcing the worker to adapt to the environment. You know, essentially, there's been more funding for firefighters and, you know, policemen and, uh, you know, other fields as opposed to the impact of ergonomics on, on surgeons. And I would love to see more funding mechanisms to further our understanding of work-related musculoskeletal disorders as well as interventions. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable OBGYN podcast, your source for all things obstetrics and gynecology. You can find all previous episodes of our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and on backtable.com. This is a very special episode. We have a guest who is a friend and also a co-host for Backtable OBGYN. Happy to welcome Dr. Amy Park, uh, Section Head of Female Pelvic Medicine and Reconstructive Surgery at the Cleveland Clinic. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me. No, we're excited. We're excited to have you um, to talk about ergonomics and surgery and gynecologic surgery specifically. But we also want to use this opportunity to introduce you to our soon-to-exist Backtable audience so they can know who you are and how you got to be where you are in your professional career um, and also how you got to Backtable. So I would love to hear how you got to be where you are right now? Well, just a little bit about myself. I, I grew up in California, and then I came to the East Coast and went to school in the Northeast. I went to Brown for college. And then I've sort of been in the East Coast and Midwest ever since. I attended University of Rochester for medical school. Then I went to McGee Women's Hospital to complete my OBGYN residency. And then I trained at the clinic for your gynecology fellowship. I was then in practice for 11 years at Washington Hospital Center, had a really great group there, and then was recruited back to the clinic to become the section head. And surgical ergonomics has been a big interest of mine. When I first started practicing, you know, I was 35 years old um, when I came out of fellowship, and I was doing a lot of surgery. And I developed a shoulder problem where I couldn't raise my right arm past the horizontal plane. Oh my goodness. So I couldn't put a purse over my arm or my shoulder. And I remember thinking, I'm at the beginning of my career. I'm really- It's terrifying. It's it's terrifying as the primary breadwinner of the, I still am the primary breadwinner for my family. And I was like, I cannot afford to have this problem. Fortunately, it didn't preclude me from operating, and I did not have to go seek medical attention or modify my practice, but it was definitely a wake-up call. And once you talk to more surgeons, almost everyone has had a brush with some sort of issue that has given them a, a, a scare or you know required PT or surgery. And now that I'm pushing 50, it's just epidemic. And it's quite an interesting proposition because, you know, in terms of surgical culture, I think traditionally we're trained not to talk about it. But once you talk to 
more and more surgeons, almost everyone has had a brush with this. No, I, I definitely have had those days at the end of the day, especially maybe the next morning where you're just like, did I just get hit by a truck or something yesterday? I don't feel right. I, I, I don't know if you played sports or anything else, you know, or any, any, any other, like I played drums for 30 years. And so yeah. like my right shoulder is not a normal right shoulder. Um, and as a laparoscopic surgeon, there's definitely days where you feel it and makes makes you think about it. I've been lucky so far, but it, it is a scary thing. And I know doctors who've had to go to PT. I know doctors who've had to have surgery. I know that this is something that actually just I just got an email this morning from a colleague outside of my department who is emailing a bunch of us who operate and saying, hey, one of our residents wants to do a study on surgery ergonomics. And I'm like, oh, I can't wait to tell her about the show. Like I got the email this morning because I think it's something that is so critical to allowing us to do this job. So I, I was really excited to have you on the show in general, but specifically to talk about this job. Um, before we jump too much into the, into, into the into the meat of the show, though, talk to, talk to me about like your practice now, what your job is like in Cleveland. What's your day to day? What's your uh, what's the bulk of your practice? So I'm fortunate to be part of an institution and a group that really has been seminal and pushing forward the you know in innovating in the field of urogynecology. So my practice and my day-to-day -day really encompasses like the traditional academic three-legged stool, like in terms of the clinical, including surgical aspects and research and education. We do have a fellowship and then we have a tracking OBGYN program at the Cleveland Clinic. I'm usually in clinic. And you mean for tracking, you mean surgical track versus obstetrics track? Or yes. Is that... Yes. So there's okay. only two and now I think three OBGYN pr tracking programs in the country. We are the longest standing one. I think it's been 10 years uh, since wow. Dr. Jalosik, who's now at Duke, founded this program along with Dr. Falcone. And then there, I think Mayo Clinic just started a tracking type program. And then Swedish, actually one of my co-residents uh, is the program director there uh, in Seattle, uh, just started a, a, a tracking program. But it's, a, it's, okay. it's, uh, it's quite innovative in that the residents do have to do a certain number of rotations in order to complete ACGME requirements. But within that, there's some flexibility in terms of tracking rotations where they can choose to do more MFM or family planning or urogynecology or oncology or do an away rotation. We had one of our residents recently return after doing a breast fellowship, and she actually was able to do more breast cases than a lot of general surgery applicants just because oh, of wow. the flexibility within our program. We should do a show on that. We should talk about absolutely like, the, the, the challenges in resident education and surgical an obstetric experience. Now that's that's fascinating. It is. Awesome. It's it's pretty interesting. I mean, we it it requires a lot of introspection and drive on the part of the trainees who choose to enter this program because you have to write a justification for what your tracking block is going to be and your reasoning and what your goals are, uh, etc. And but and it also on the part of the program and the institution. Uh, requires that you do not rely on residents for service. So, wait a second. Hold on. 
How are you supposed to run a residency <laughs> without relying on that for, for service? I mean, it's, it's so it, that's a whole other novel. Yeah. So it's, you know, we don't, I don't have coverage, resident coverage for all of my cases. Like there's definitely majors that go uncovered. And so you have surgical assistants that you guys have. We have available PAs, for that, yeah, at, uh, okay. at the, yeah. well, mm-hmm. we, our, our main hospitals, main campus, we have residents pretty much covering every case, but at the other hospitals, we'll often have a, a PA. So I'll have vaginists that go uncovered. We're just starting to do that now as our program's grown here too. I just hired a partner and my urogynecology partner just, uh, we just hired another urogynecologist as well. And we've, you know, our residency program hasn't grown. So we're going to have a lot more volume without more coverage. And we're figuring that out too. But other ergonomic challenges and not having the assistance and the support maybe that you thought you had uh, before. But I know you've done research. I know you've written on ergonomics and, and talk to us a little bit about work-related musculoskeletal disorders. Like what, like what we know about that, what we, like where that all started. Cause I don't think I heard about that once in training, you know, speaking of residency, like I don't, that's not anything anyone ever talked to me about. Like, Oh, here, here's how to protect your back and shoulders. Like when you, when you had this shoulder issue, like what were the next steps for you in that in that process of discovering what that all was about? Well, I think you mentioned the crux of the problem, which is essentially a lack of awareness uh, surrounding this issue. And I think one of the things that really has been a positive development in the last couple of years is the focus on wellness and the promotion of a culture where it's okay to pay attention to yourself and to prioritize uh, work-life balance and, you know, all of the things that go into that. And I think this definitely falls within promoting wellness, career longe- longevity, and, you know, preventing disability and career modification in the future. Regarding the issue of ergonomics, it's really the study of how the environment, the worker interacts with the environment. And one of the crucial things is to try and adapt the environment to the worker instead of forcing the worker to adapt to the environment. The whole thing with uh, muscul- work-related musculoskeletal disorders is the problem of, in this case, surgeons trying to adapt to the environment in maladaptive ways. And there's a number of factors that contribute to that prolonged static positioning, vibrating tools, cold, and then just not having ergonomic positioning overall. And what I mean by ergonomic positioning is essentially we want to try as hard as possible to keep a neutral position. But I want to just circle back and just state this is an epidemic and we have workforce issues that are affecting healthcare. We see it with the nursing shortages right now, and that's a crisis that essentially has been 20 years in the making. There aren't enough nursing positions or spots open in training because it's, it's you know, I just read this big article in the Clue and Plain Dealer about this, but essentially there's not enough spots in nursing school because it's the, the nursing teaching positions pay less than the clinical. So there just aren't enough teachers out there in nursing school. And then there's mass retirements happening and, bur- uh, you know, epidemic burnout. So it's a, it's a it's a quite a number of factors contributing to that. 
in the medical field, we also have limited number of positions, um, as you know, in terms of medical school, residency spots. Well, they've increased the number of med school spots dramatically without really adjusting the number of residency spots too, right? So you have right. this whole other epidemic of unmatched medical students. And every single year on match day, I tweet the same thing, which is medical schools need to own it. And if they have students that do everything they ask and don't match, they should get their money back. That to me should be part of it. There should be a like a guarantee. I think it's crazy to think that you could go all the way through med school, take all, all those loans, pay for everything, do everything you were told, pick a specialty that matches whatever your CV looks like, a reasonable suggestion. And if you don't match and do everything right, there should be some accountability on that side too. But Yes, it's it's huge, huge problem. And uh, now I think there's more acceptable acceptability t- to having DOs join residency programs. So it's another mm-hmm. slot problem in terms of residency. But essentially, we have this uh, workforce that is limited in terms of the number of training spots. And then we have a huge demographic bulge coming up with the baby boomers. I mean, I can tell you myself, my Paramix, when I started practicing in 2009, was about 30% Medicare. Now it's about 39 to 40%. And um, you're seeing a huge bulge demographically in terms of aging population. No increase in the number of physicians. And particularly, there's going to be a a shortage of surgeons. So uh, I see this as really imperative, both on the individual level, but also a workforce issue level. And I know for us, we're definitely seeing it uh, for the anesthesia side. We're, you know, one of the sites, one of the hospitals that I work at, the anesthesia staff are retiring. Same kind of thing. They're, you know, I think the average age is is like 55 to 65 and they're burned out and they're like, sayonara. See you later, folks. And all that puts more pressure on those of us who are operating, right, to, I mean, your patient population is aging, right? So that's most of your patients are you know, going to be older than a uh, a surgeon like like me who deals with endometriosis, more reproductive age things. You know, urogynecology patients are going to be older than our patients, so your your volume is going to go up with the age of our patient of our of our population in this country as the boomer age grows. You need to operate more. You need to there, there aren't more of you, right? So you have to somehow take care of this population that's growing. Um, you've got to operate more and more and more demand on you physically to keep up with all this without the support, the system support that you're describing. So it, 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 we all see where it's going, or at least those of us who are paying attention see where it's going, but I don't know that any of us necessarily have the answers because I don't think it's a, it's a simple answer. It's a systems answer. Yeah. It's going to be- It's, it's a problem. It's, it's, it's a 20-year answer, right? The nursing shortage, those things, it's a 20-year. It's okay, create more nursing educators so that you can create more nursing spots in schools so in 10 years we can have a few more nurses. I mean- there was a big systematic review published in JAMA Surgery a couple years ago by Epstein et al. And essentially, 12% of surgeons and proceduralists reported either career modification, disability, or premature retirement due to work-related musculoskeletal disorders. 12%? Yes. So it's, but it's, it's, it's most likely a, a, um, and underreporting because if you look at the individual aggregate studies, the n- numbers are way higher than that. They're like forty percent head ha- of of surgeons, seventy percent of surgeons. It just depends on where you're slicing it and who you know how well the how high the the survey respondent rate was. I mean, if I'm talking to my my colleagues, it's a hundred percent. Right. 
that have that have some maybe they're not in PT or maybe they're not requiring a medical intervention. Like you know, I've been lucky that I haven't had to go see anybody, or at least whether I whether I'm supposed to, I haven't. Like it affects everybody after a long day. There's no way to go and do what we do without having some physical impact. And I'm you know I'm ten years out from training. I hope to be doing this for quite a bit longer. Um, and I have to think about the ways that I can do that safely because I like what I do. People are counting on me doing what I do, and I don't want to have to miss time or stop doing what I do because of a physical disability or limitation, especially one that's potentially preventable. Oh, absolutely. And I think, um, you know, s- surgeon culture traditionally has been putting the patient in front of our own concerns. In spite of the data that says put yourself in a position to better care for patients by taking better care of yourself, right? That's not the culture, the predominant culture, at least historically, that we were trained in, right? It was always, like you said, put yourself, put the patient before everything else. Yeah, and, and it's it's just like there's all this patient safety culture and the analogies with the aviation industry, and we should be putting the oxygen on ourselves first before we put it on our children. Love that. It's the same type of thing with these maneuvers that don't actually adversely impact the patient, but really uh, can impact our career longevity. And, you know, one of the things, there's many, many things that go along with with surgical ergonomics, but I think the the first step is awareness. The, The surgical culture of like pain is weakness leaving the body, put the patient first. We don't, you know, don't stop for breaks. A lot of similarities to competitive sports, right? Where it's yeah. just like you have to power through things. And, you know, I think even especially now in sports, most obviously, I think in things like football where players are stepping away from the game. I mean, even in basketball, players are stepping away from the game earlier and earlier because they're playing more games at a younger age and their bodies, bodies are wearing down. You know, one of the things that I think that, that I, I want to talk about in a few minutes, though, is just the different approaches and how we operate differently now than we did. 10, 20, 30 years ago. But before we get there, like, let's, when we talk about ergonomics, I want to think about, I like how you put it, we're adapting the environment to the surgeon, not trying to adapt the surgeon to the environment. And I think, you know, we think about something as simple as just like how you stand in the OR, how, like, what kind of shoes that you're wearing and those kinds of things. And so, like, when, you, when we talk about just simple in, individual ways to improve our ergonomics in the operating room. What types of things are you talking about? And thinking maybe just starting with like normal open surgery, like how, like how, what are, what are things that you see? What are injuries that are associated with that versus other approaches? So with particular to the uh, open approach, if you're using loops or headlamps or the table height is inappropriate, you can get a lot of excessive neck flexion. And most of the studies show, you know, about 60 to 70% of the time in the operating room with excessive neck flexion, excessive trunk deviation, as well as abducted arms. I know the listeners can't see it, but just recreating the scene at a, at a OR table, if the table height is too high or too low, and having to put your your arms and your shoulders outside of you know really in a forward position out, out wide, out wide forward. Yeah, forward i think not adjusting 
the monitors and the foot cords and the step stools in an appropriate manner. Um, I think the nothing we can do about stature. I mean, you're either born short or tall, but extreme, the extremes of of height can be a problem. And no, I tra- I trained with. I mean, I was one of the taller people on my program, and most of the people that trained me, if not. Not all, but most were shorter than me and adjusting, you know, I, I would sit for deliveries because if I stood in training, not many people could help me. Yeah. And things like that. I think that as you're saying this, I'm having these flashbacks of being a medical student, and, you know, contorting your body yes. in a certain way and holding a retractor. And as I've gotten more aware of surgical ergonomics and my own positioning, I've made it a priority not just to think about my own positioning and how I'm standing or how I'm sitting. Um, but if our med student is like leaning someone like, all right, hold on, let's stop where you are. Go ahead and just like stand up straight. Like or our residents, a lot of times the IV pull during a laparoscopic case is like way too far forward. Um, and they're hunched or turning sideways or their, or their shoulders are way up and out or they're, you can tell they're not standing in a normal ergonomic position. And part of that is educating trainees, not just about how to move through the steps of a hysterectomy, but understanding how to stand during a laparoscopic hysterectomy. And I do a lot of that um, less formally, but it's definitely something that it does impact not just how they're operating today, but knowing that this is good. If they learn to do it the wrong way, they're going to be hurting and they're young and they're all young and healthy and don't care about suffering now, right? In training, because they don't, they don't, they don't want to be a bother, right? And so it's the kind of thing they're never going to say anything unless we proactively say, hey, stop, let's get a get a step stool for you or something, right? So I think being an active teacher in this is a huge part of it. I totally agree. And setting up the, the field and adequate exposure is crucial to being a surgeon, but also paying attention to your team is a skill. And when you're trying to learn, it's really hard to pay attention to yourself and the way you contort your body. It's just not something that people are tuned to. So we as the teachers have to help the trainees and the learners be aware of what their positioning is, just like coaches do for the athletes. And I always say the surgeon should be considered a high-performance athlete. We should be paying attention to our diet, to our sleep, to our exercise, to all of those things that contribute to our physical and mental performance. Lack of sleep never did anybody any good, okay? (laughs) You know, Michael Phelps is getting probably eight hours of sleep a night and he's getting massage, and he's getting PT, and he's getting rolled out, and he's doing all of these things. Tom Brady and LeBron James care a lot more about their diet now than they did when they were 18, just getting started in this game, um, because they understand to keep doing what they're doing at that level. And I'm not trying to compare myself to those guys, but I do think that you know, doing a hard physical thing for decades it's easy for little things to become big things over time. Oh, absolutely. Um, and, yeah, and I think it's essential. So, you know, going back to what you're saying about what can we do to mitigate these problems, you know, using anti-fatigue masks, like I have one in front of, where, you know, when I uh, wash my dishes, but, you know, using that, using the appropriate footwear. So just like just like a squishy mat. Yeah, the squishy mat. The, you know, they should not okay. be called princess pads because there's nothing princessy about <laughs> like protecting your health, you know, adding, having the appropriate footwear. What does appropriate footwear look like? What is I, I know every, every, all the anecdotal things about what people say works, but is there any data on like certain types of footwear actually can improve 
back pain? Do you know of anything like that? I'm, I, I don't know if I've seen I that. Don't, I haven't seen any studies on it, but you want to get some a rolling, you know, a rocking discussion on social media on Facebook or Reddit. People <laughs> just ask about footwear and people have their favorite footwear brand, Dansko, Calzero, Hoka's. Cowboy boot crews yeah. as well. <laughs> yeah. People love people love their cowboy boots in yeah. the OR. Yeah, exactly. But um not for um, me. But I think that uh, other things that we can do that are pretty achievable is, you know, in terms of table height, we should be able to set up the field, the IV pole, the way that the, that our trainees are holding the retractors, self-retaining retractors, uh, making sure that the monitor height is appropriate. I just I just started doing that. I was reading, preparing for this talk is my monitor heights were way too high. And I think that was causing me to have some neck strain. Just And, and, and I, if I'm the tallest guy in the room, everybody else is worse. Yes. Everybody else is looking up higher than I am. So having that monitor low. So where should... if so we talked about open surgery, laparoscopic surgery is a whole other, a whole other series of potential problems for pain. Um, monitor height for laparoscopic surgery um, is something I hadn't really considered. Yeah, it's huge. Monitor height, and then um, you know, there's a lot of neck strain associated with all the modalities of surgery. You know, open, laparoscopic, robotic, vaginal, which is very particular to OBGYN. Well, now there's more vagin, there's, there's more natural orifice surgery, right? So there may be more and more folks who are performing natural access or natural orifice surgery. The, yeah, as well. the V notes yeah. I think is 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 yeah. hot. I think the use of Trendelenburg is underrated. I mean, I know you you know because you're laparoscopic surgeons, so you use it all the time. But in vaginal surgery, I think that that's key to getting access to a lot an exposure for a, a, and we should be using that all the time. And you know when you change the surgeon, you change the height and you need to adjust appropriately. And I'm going to circle back to the neutral position because, you know, there's all sorts of things like not flexing the neck more than 25 degrees, but that's hard, really hard. You don't know 25 degrees, but you kind of know what a neutral position is. So you want your neck not to be excessively flexed or extended, not having a lot of excessive trunk flexion or extension, not having the shoulders out abducted too much. You want to have your elbows at sort of a 90 to 120 degree angle, um, have the, the, the shoulders closer to the body and sort of retract the shoulders a little bit so that you have a straight posture. And you want to make sure that your weight is sort of evenly distributed and not on one leg. The thing is about the use of the, the foot pedals I know I use the stools um, when I'm doing laparoscopic sacrocopalpexies because of the table height issue, et cetera. But, you know, keeping your foot, one foot on the stool and then another foot cocked on the, the foot pedal is also sort of an unnatural position to keep for a long time. So do you have the foot pedal on a separate step up or do you have yeah, I do. I, that on the ground? No, I have it on a separate step up, but still yeah. like, you know, in terms of keeping your weight, you know, if you're doing a lot of cautery, your foot is just kind of like, and you can imagine, I mean, having your foot like, like cock like that for, uh, and your tibia, you know, in that position for a long time is, is, is not good for your body. And, um, I know when I do, um, uh, a lot of laparoscopic surgery, it's just, it's so hard on all, I mean, all the, all of the modality of surgery are just hard on your body. Um, but particular to laparoscopic surgery is the 
ergonomics of the instrumentation and the handles. So that that was the two questions I had for you. So yeah, so let's talk about that, about the instrumentation. And then the other thing I want to talk to you about after that is the next evolution of laparoscopic surgery, which is which is the robot. And so, because um, I think those are both things that I've paid a lot closer interest to. I did a ton, a ton of robotic surgery and fellowship, spent the last seven years doing no robot cases because of the hospital I was at and because it wasn't part of my practice. But now that I've started thinking more about ergonomics, I've started reading more and more about robotic surgery and its impact. So let's 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 hold off on robots for a second. I do want to I want to hear from you though how the instrumentation can impact the user, the surgeon in these in these uh in these long cases. Well first of all, the handles are too big for many surgeons who have smaller hands and the, the, there's many studies showing that a glove size of less than six and a half and shorter stature, which kind of go together, obviously, are it result in more strain in terms of hand, wrist, arm, shoulder pain. There's only one instrument, I think it's a harmonic, where actually Kelly Wright, who's a MIG surgeon, was a biomechanical engineer um, prior to her life as a surgeon. And actually they modeled the the instrument on her hand. And so it's a smaller handle. And I see a lot of MIG surgeons actually using that when I watch the surgical videos. I'm the SGS program chair, so I've watched a lot of videos. And it <laughs> seems like it's the the bipolar instrument of choice for for many, many, many MIG surgeons. And I think because the handle's easier, but it's also pretty good for the kind of energy is is pretty good for uh, endometriotic type dissections and et cetera. But regardless, the rest of them are very wide handles and they're, they're, it's just hard. I mean, I, I use the ligature and um, I tried using the, I usually use the blunt tip, but I use the uh, Maryland tip one time and I really like the Maryland tip, the tip itself, but actually putting my finger on top, it's just too hard to try and, and, and stretch. And you get a lot of strain, for example, using that. But then switching over to the general surgery crowd, you know, I follow a lot of the general surgeons on social media and they talk about how they can't use a stapler with one hand, you know, and they have to use a two-handed uh, stapler approach. I, I mean, I think that's that's terrible. And then the issue with palming the instruments, I think is also very, very difficult. I think the table height issue, the instrumentation and the design will require partnering with industry and a ground swelling on both the on multiple levels, obviously, industry, the surgeons, um, institutions. You know, I saw a really great talk by Dr. Adrian Park, who has been in this niche for a long time, doing a lot of research, and he made the point that the operating room has not been redesigned for over a century. Like it's essentially been the same for a long time, and we should be using human the input of human factor research in order to design the OR of the future, because the future is now. And um, I definitely agree with that. I mean, I do think that obviously there's been a lot of progress in, in, in the technological innovation and the monitors and uh, the mics and 
all of that other stuff. But I don't think that we have necessarily incorporated the ergonomic aspect. It's it's almost an afterthought, though, or not almost. It's an afterthought. I mean, they design in the, the the hospital we're operating in now is what forty fifty years old. Didn't have laparoscopic surgery when any of these. ORs were designed, let alone robotic surgery. I've been trying to squeeze a couple of uh, surgeon consoles and a robot into a room designed for something where you would have an open, <laughs> you know, open tray, and that's it in these rooms. And so, just physically fitting the stuff into a room that they weren't designed for is 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 how most of us are probably working right now. Because unless a hospital was designed last week, they're 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 not up to date. And hospitals were designed 10 years before they're built, all those things. And so, you know, trying, like you said, trying to make it fit, trying to work within what we have, I think it starts with individuals like us, us teaching ourselves how to operate more safely ergonomically and then teaching our residents and students to take it more seriously and to make sure that they're speaking up because they're never going to say anything. They're never going to say they're uncomfortable. I find myself doing that all the time. I mean, I basically... I'm saying, let's adjust the table. You're flexing to your neck too much. I'm the same way. Seems I'm like, like you're, you're not. You look like you're uncomfortable. Like you're squinched up there. Like just <laughs> move, move that IV pulp because they don't want to bother the anesthesiologist. And yeah. God forbid they have yeah. to put down their Sudoku to you know fix the IV pull for a second. But that was I'm just kidding. I like our anesthesia colleagues, but no, I mean, like, <laughs> and they're always happy to help. That like they want the surgery to go smoothly. They they want everything to go well, just as just as much as we do. And but giving them the sort of coaching that, hey, you got to speak up and advocate for yourself. It's not a sign of weakness. If this is how you do surgery and how you do it well, is to put yourself in a, you know, set set yourself up for success, right? I, I tell that to my students, to my residents, to my kids, like set, set everything up. And, and I do that when I'm setting the table up, all your cords, there's no, you know, snake's nest of cords. We, we make it look a certain way. So we're not distracted by those things. How you're standing is part of that table setup. And I think that's a good opportunity when you're preparing to operate before you make any incisions, before you do anything. When you prep and drape, like set yourself up for success, stand or sit or however you're going to be operating, set it up now instead of an hour in where you're like already tired and the case isn't going well and your things start popping up. And so teaching that at the beginning. I agree with you 100%. I mean, we are so big on patient positioning and making sure that the hips are not Overly flex or extended, tucking the the arms. I tuck um, my by arms sides. by my every single case. I'm like crazy about it. Yes, and that it's it padding so you don't get a perineal nerve injury. You know, this is part of the the whole deal. Is you know setting up your field, setting up exposure. We should also be optimizing surgical surgeon positioning. Um, that should be part and parcel of all of this because if we don't have enough, if we don't have the right posture, um, we're not maximizing our potential. You know, and if our Trudel- workforce is limited, we're talking about this, or you know, like you mentioned earlier, we got to make sure the workforce that we have here is going to be healthy enough to continue to do this hard job for the next 30 years, right? Those trainees and students we're, we're teaching now, like they're going to be the ones that are the workforce after we're, after we're retired. And so we need them to be doing this a long time. We have to prepare them how to do this job a long time. Well, just as you know, we are there to train the trainees and how to do surgery, we have to teach them how to be in tune with their bodies. I mean, that's why I like working out with a trainer because 
you know, I'm doing my back squats and I'm leaning all the way to one side to avoid my left knee problem. You know what I'm saying? Like we should be teaching them to have body awareness that this is not, this is an awkward position. And I see patients, I see uh, my trainees doing dissections in a non-ergonomic manner and it's going to down the road lead to carpal tunnel or what have you. And the research has borne this out that, you know, inexperience or younger age puts you at risk of developing work-related musculoskeletal disorders. So as we age, we gain that um, experience. But, you know, I always say this, and I just said it to my kids the other day, like judgment comes from experience and experience comes from making mistakes. So I don't want you to have these problems that I had. And I want to teach you how to get the appropriate exposure without having, you know, incurring the the damage, the complications, the mistakes that I made. So, you know, because you, you can see the pitfalls once you've done them. And um, that's the whole, I think, rationale behind M&M is like, how can we learn from this and avoid this in the future, or make it better or, you know, know how to respond or what have you. And that's the same with this this ergonomic issue. I think and, and talking about it, I mean, like you said, it's not a sign of weakness. If I'm telling my residents like, you know, my back's killing me because I didn't do this right for the last 10 years. Here's how you're going to do it. So you don't have to deal with the stuff that I'm dealing with. Or I had a friend who hurt their hand operating a certain way and can't operate again or, you know, shoulder issues and those things. And like and making it a priority in the OR. And I do that a lot in my practice in general is try to be open about my challenges that I've had along the way. And, and part of doing a show like this is so we can share these experiences because I think a lot of us feel like we're the only ones that are dealing with this or we're embarrassed to talk about it. But this is, this is, this is so important to allow us to do this job that everybody, I think if you ask them, is if you just asked enough questions, they would say there's something that bothers them about doing this job after, after so many years. It's not hard to find anybody who's had these issues. What are, what are ways going forward where technology can help us out though? I mean, I, again, I just started, I just topped back on the robot after a few years because I'd read a few things that there are potential opportunities for less ergonomic strain compared to, to traditional laparoscopy. That's not, that's not why I did it, but like having residents and you need to get back on the console and training and those things. But there does seem to be some potential for improvement in, you know, work-related musculoskeletal disorders with different technological advances and the robot being one, one of those potential uh, advancements. Well, if you look at the data, it does suggest that the robot is associated with a little less strain and work-related musculoskeletal disorders, but it really depends on experience. If you you know you have to look at this at, at the data with regards to certain subgroups. How much of it right is just people not standing the right way, not setting themselves up correctly, as opposed to the instrument itself? Well, the the thing is, I mean, the like yes, it sounds more relaxing because you're sitting at a at a chair at the console. But if you don't adjust the console to the right height, if you don't have a chair with lumbar support, if you're not, if you're sitting with your, you know, more forward in the chair instead of having the entirety of your upper leg like on the chair with lumbar back support, with the arm rests out to the sides and having the wheels locked instead of, because you can easily push against the console with your forehead and just start moving back. And then you're going so, so forward that you can't, you know, and that is, Something that hospitals is, will spend $3 million on a robot and not spend $600 on a chair. Yeah. I and mean, that's, it's, that, that's, that's the truth. Like, oh, you just use this stool. It's like, but I'm rolling away from the robot in the middle of the yeah. case. 
Like you, you know, keep having to like scooch up. Yeah, you have to you have to either lock the wheels or you have to um, put a rolled up blanket behind it. You need to have the surgeon take one minute and adjust the the height of the console because obviously people are different heights. I saw this great picture of a pregnant resident trying to be at the console and her legs were like so squished in between the fetus and the console. <laughs> and, the, and, and you have to make sure that your shoulders are retracted and you're, you know, always be clutching so that you're in the neutral position instead of going like this and shrugging your shoulders. I feel like there needs to be a whole other like study on how pregnant physicians can can improve their ergonomics. I mean, I mean, I just am blown away by uh, my colleagues who've been working all the way up to term, you know, moving beds and doing these really hard things that we're talking about. Oh, also being term pregnant. And it's just mind blowing to me as somebody who talk about instruments designed, OR designed. It's I'm a six foot male, right? So everything's just kind of built for for me. You know, that's kind of how things were designed. And it's basically er everything that I'm talking about is worse for everybody else. It is tough. It seems awful. It's um, <laughs> well the the uh, it's that's funny that you say that because my uh, the two two stories when I was pregnant and I was operating until I can't remember thirty four thirty six weeks I was sharing this office at the clinic with uh, two fellows who are from France and they were like what are you doing here they basically you know in Europe. You're, you know, it's, it's particularly in France, like pregnant residents aren't operating past like, I don't know, third trimester, like early third trimester. And they were like, this place is barbaric. <laughs> um, the, of all, the, of they, all the specialties <laughs> that should think about, you know, what we, we, if we're talking about putting women's health at the forefront of what we do every day, most of us who do this job are capable of getting pregnant, right? Like the vast majority of our trainees, right? And Yet we do very little, I think, across the board to think about the ways their training is different than mine and, and, and things that we can do. I mean, it, it is something I've been talking about for many, many years about like. I don't know what the right answer is because, you know, I, I as looking back on my pregnancy, it's not like I would want to miss out on cases just because I'm pregnant because there's not really a mechanism for flexibility in the current situation. But, um, but our residencies and fellowships do span our prime years of fertility. So I don't know what the right answer is for that. But the other story I have is I was talking to Human Factors PhD, and she's basically dedicated her whole career to, you know, surgeon ergonomics. And she was telling me that when she first started her career, she got her PhD and she went to a meatpacking company. And um, this factory was basically designed for German settlers um, in the Midwest. And the whole factory line was designed for, you know, six foot tall guys, like, or whatever. And, um, and then the workforce changed. And it was a lot of immigrants who were just a different stature. And they were getting swept away on the factory lines, like literally. I mean, I'm laughing, but it's terrible. And she came and she watched them doing their meatpacking thing. And she was like, you do not need a PhD. Like, you just need a set of eyeballs to see what is going on. Here in terms of like the design of this place is not for this current workforce, you know, and what you totally you describe is totally correct. Um, I think that the nice thing is now we have a pretty good momentum in terms of raising awareness. And, um, you know, I'm a co-founder of this Society of Surgical Ergonomics and 
And there, it's a multidisciplinary group with Yeah, talk about that surgeon. a little bit. Yeah, so there's like, you know, we came together on Twitter because we were all very interested in it, mostly motivated by our own health scares <laughs> and um, personal experiences. And, you know, it's general surgeons, urologists, me, neurosurgeon. And just, I think there's definitely been some early wins. Like we just had our first symposium and the American Journal of Surgery is supposed to be our our journal for the papers from that meeting. I think that uh, another early win was uh, there's a SCORE curriculum, which is uh, analogous to our CREOG uh, uh, curriculum, and they have a er- surgical ergonomics component in that. Is there anything of, about ergonomics in, in our resident training curriculums? Is that? No, currently not. And I have lobbied my APCO CREOG contacts. But, you know, CREOG is, or sorry, APCO is more focused on undergraduate medical education. So the medical students transitioning into residency. So we don't currently have that. And then the the third thing that that, uh, was an early win, because this society has only been in existence for about a year, maybe a little over a year, is um, there was a trial called the first trial. And it was a multi-center trial. Look, and it was basically, we had a similar kind of survey that was administered prior to our CREOGs, but they administered it to the general surgery residents before their shelf exams. And and it it basically showed widespread burnout, depression. (laughs) You know, it was was dark. (laughs) Just like our our CREOG type uh, surveys were were illuminating in terms of the insights. So the, the next step of that first trial, it's called the second trial, is the intervention component of that, addressing wellness in burnout in general surgery residency programs. So programs are essentially randomized to controls, which is just as is, versus intervention programs or curricula. And surgical ergonomics is one of the modules within the the second trial. So, you know, if you go to the second trial website, they discuss some of the parameters what they are using in order to address wellness and mental health and burnout in these programs. Um, and so I think there's been a lot of movement in the last year to try and address this because everyone acknowledges that this is a problem. And, you know, circling back to your question about the robot, I would say robotic, maybe better asterisk if you have the appropriate posture and techniques to avoid injury. Or just an opportunity for a new kind of injury. Right. I mean, I think if you, I mean, I've seen I, my my colleagues who I just wrote a, a another ergonomics paper with. She sent me some pictures of people on the console, and you could tell the height is not correct. They're really pushing their foreheads into the console. Their their bottoms are really far back, you know, with the chair. They're too flexed or too extended in terms of their hips and their knees at the console, and their elbows are like off. And you'll see people kind of chasing their pathology instead of moving the camera and like centering themselves a lot too. And if you're not used to doing it a lot, you can see people really reaching or like being squished up, you know, in, in, instead of centering their hands in a more neutral position. Yeah. And their shoulders are, are, are like this, right? you know, because they're not clutching and they're not recentering. So I think if you have awareness and you can position yourself and just readjust yourself constantly but i think you can do you can occur the same damage on the robot and actually i do know somebody who essentially snapped his wrist tendon on the robot so 
unfortunately, nothing is safe. You know, all we can do is mitigating measures. So, so it sounds to me like, yes, there are technologies that have potential for reducing certain kinds of surgical injuries, but there may be new injuries associated with it. And ultimately, it comes down to education. So educating the educators first, you know, you and I have to, you know, learn what good ergonomics looks like. We have to then educate our trainees. We have to not just by example, but make sure they understand what the right way to do things looks like, where to stand, how to stand, where to put your instrumentation table, monitor patient, all those things, making sure they understand it's a priority. And that's where CREOG and those educational institutions come into play, where we actually need to think about creating systems that educate our trainees and and to create better habits. Because if we teach them wrong, they're going to do it that way forever. And so if we're going to protect our workforce, if we're going to make sure that our patients get the best care. I mean, if, if, if I'm in pain, I'm not operating as well, right? We, that's, that's, that's ultimately, it's about patient care. But then, but then lastly, what you do and what we're grateful that you do is, in addition to all the hats you wear, but is studying this stuff and being a voice and you know, creating this ergonomic society and doing the research to understand where the problems are and, and so we can create better interventions. Certainly, innovation is an opportunity to um, I mean, technological innovation specifically is an opportunity to improve those, but that's going to take a long time. And there's a lot of people right now who need to better understand how to take care of themselves today so they can do this job for a long time. I agree with you. I think some of the things that uh, are really exciting to me right now is, number one, I love the fact that you told me your resident wants to do a project on this. This this is not going to be a problem that we can solve with onesie, twosie, like one-off type of research. Like this is going to take a movement and many, many different actors to make this, to give us insights on what the best path forward is. And it's going to take everybody coming together to research and raise awareness and educate and figure out solutions. Second of all, um, you know, when I watch this symposium, it was now like probably two or three weeks ago, there was just so much exciting stuff in terms of potential solutions. And um, when you asked me about innovations or technological solutions for these issues, some of the things that were super exciting were just looking at how people are using in terms of defining the scope of the problem, these inertial measurement units. I mean, they're very expensive right now. Hopefully the technology will go down in price. I mean, somebody just Somebody else just approached me about doing something along those lines um, in terms of objective measurements. But like in order to get these units, they're like $18,000. So she has to get grant funding just to get these units. But in terms of interventions, the use of these exoskeletons that have like active and passive support. Somebody else told me that he had been working on an Xbox related solution where, you know, it would give you a little buzz if you weren't in an ergonomic position. I think that I see, I feel like I've seen those like for, for posture, right? Like if you're slouching, yes. put these things on your back and it'll, it'll give you a little physical reminder that you're not sitting the right way. So yeah, that's exciting. And this is the, this is the Society for Surgical Ergonomics. Is that the name? Yeah. And then um, the other one that I saw that was super cool was like an artificial intelligence powered real-time ergonomic assessment. So it had somebody like at a, it was actually like in the sim lab, but it was someone who they had the little, you know, drawing on the person and, and on the video and they were assessing, you know, the ergonomics. And that'd be cool if you had somebody, you know, 
I mean, every other person can go to the running store and they can analyze your stride and your golf swing. And we don't have that for surgeons and ergonomic assessments. You can have some someone in your institution come and a- analyze your desk setup. Yep, we have that, the ergonomics experts, and see where <laughs> yeah. my chair height and desk height is. But yeah, do we have that for surgery? And I don't think we do. We don't. I mean, certain institutions do. Like I've seen someone posted on Twitter about you can have somebody come to your OR to to analyze and then um, somebody else. I bet it's not free. And I think that's yeah. where we have to, like the last thing I'll say here, I know we probably got to wrap up for you. I know you're busy, but the work you're doing is so important, not just in the research and in the ideas and the innovation, but is, is bringing awareness to the value of surgeon uh, ergonomic improvements because there's going to be a cost to surgeons not being able to operate. There's going to be a cost to early retirements. There's going to be a cost to all these things. And if ultimately the goal is for all of us to be able to stay in the hospital and operate and keep this machine going, hospitals need to understand the value. The industry needs to understand this is important and they need to, and they need to show that importance by funding the research, by funding the tools required to not only study, but also improve ergonomics for those of us who do this job. And so I, I, I'm incredibly grateful that not only are you uh, one of our co-hosts here for Backtable OBGYN, I'm also incredibly grateful for all the work you're doing for understanding surgical ergonomic issues and bringing it to light in a way, in a formal way that allows people like me to learn much, much more about it instead of just, you know, being tired and, and sore at the end of the day to actually think about all the ways that we can improve not only our own uh, our own surgical uh, positioning, but also our trainees, because that's why we are in academic places, right? So we get to teach and we get to hopefully make the next generation of surgeons better than we were. I think uh, what you mentioned about funding is crucial. There's a, a branch of the NIH, it's called NIOSH. It's the National Institute of Occupational Safety um, and Health. And, you know, essentially there's been more funding for firefighters and, you know, policemen and, uh, you know, other fields as opposed to the impact of poor ergonomics on, on surgeons. And I would love to see more funding mechanisms to further our understanding of work-related musculoskeletal disorders as well as interventions. It's exciting. It's a great resource for funding for those out there who are, who are interested in, in doing this type of work. And it's not obviously just gynecology. Back in January of this year, Backtable VI podcast tweeted uh, that they're interested in doing a podcast on neck health and ergonomics in the lab and the OR. So this is not, this is something we're all talking about, right? And, and this is something that needs to be addressed. Um, and so, Dr. Amy Park, thank you so much for being a guest here today on Backtable OBGYN. It's an absolute pleasure for me to get to chat with you at any time. And uh, I know you're busy, but thanks so much for making time for us today. Thank you so much, Mark, for having me. And it's my pleasure and honor to be here. 